0: beggar and preaching the gospel to the crowd that gathers. They're arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. They're held overnight. They're interrogated and given a severe warning to to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But they respond by saying, we have to obey God, not you. We we have to tell people about Jesus. The religious leaders then warn them again, and they just let them go. They're not sure what to do with them. And as Tom talked about last week, they immediately return to their friends they they pray for more boldness and and then they pray for more boldness to preach the gospel, and they're filled with the spirit again and so it's not surprising that in chapter five they're preaching the gospel and being arrested again. however, this time all the apostles are arrested and put in public prison but this but 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 this time an angel of the Lord uh kind of Puts, puts on a jailbreak and gets them out and tells them to continue to preach the gospel. And when they obey, they're arrested and interrogated and warned again. But this time, they're also beaten. And in Acts five forty one and 42, after the beating, they read, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is a pattern we see in the book of Acts. In the early church, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ led to suffering. We see it in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first martyr, is martyred. He's killed for his faith. And in Acts chapter 8, we read that after Stephen was killed, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, this persecution was led by a Pharisee named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. But in Acts chapter 9, Saul, he's on the road to Damascus. He's got letters that give him the authority to arrest Christians. But he's met there by Jesus Christ, and he's miraculously converted. He becomes the apostle Paul. And dedicates his life to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of this, Paul experiences himself great persecution. He summarizes his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Paul, all the apostles, the early church clearly suffered for the gospel. But suffering didn't stop when the New Testament ended. For many, suffering for the gospel has been a and continues to be part of the Christian life. A few months ago, I saw the movie uh, Tortured for Christ. It's the story of uh, Richard Wurmbrand, the founder of The Voice of Martyrs. He was a Christian pastor in Romania in the 40s during the communist takeover. He was imprisoned for 14 years where he endured severe torture for his faith. I found it hard to watch the scenes in the movie when they put him up and and, and were beating on his feet over and over again, that he would renounce his faith, that he would turn in others who were Christians. And persecution and suffering for being a Christian continues in 2018. North Korea has been in the news a lot, and right now some estimate there are around 300,000 Christians in North Korea. These believers must hide their faith they must meet in extreme secrecy, they have no freedom of religion, and they're under constant threat. An estimated 50,000 Christians in North Korea are imprisoned in labor camps, detention centers, and banished to remote regions of the country because of their faith. So the history of the church from the, from the book of Acts to today includes suffering And this should shouldn't surprise us because the New Testament is very clear that as Christians we will suffer. That's where we left off in the book of Romans two weeks ago. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we saw the great privileges. We first saw, we began with the great privileges we have as children of God. The privilege of security, we have security because of God's love for us. The privilege of intimacy with God. We can cry out to God, Abba, Father, Daddy. We have the privilege of assurance that we're children of God and the privilege of, an, of, a, of a future inheritance from God. Romans 8 17. As if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We will receive a great inheritance. From our Father, including uh, eternity in His presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But then Paul adds at the end of verse, the second part of verse seventeen. Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might be glorified with Him, we're heirs, receive an inheritance. Provided, or as we talked about, or since we suffer with Christ, Paul is is really stating a fact, a fact. That the first apostles experienced, the fact that Paul experienced again and again, that Christians throughout history have experienced, the fact that those who are children of God, heirs of God, will suffer with Christ. And so the question comes, is suffering worth it? Is it worth it? Is our inheritance worth all the hardship and headache of living as a child of God in this life, in this world? Now, as Americans who enjoy freedom of religion, freedom from uh, persecution, we rarely are persecuted for our faith. We might think the obvious answer to that question is it worth it? Is yes, of course. What do I got to lose? But even in our culture, where well, suffering for being a Christian is for, at the at the most for the most part limited to verbal abuse or even maybe a little ridicule, many still answer no. Being a Christian isn't worth it. They may profess faith in Jesus and and seek to live God's way for a while, but in time they find find that their present suffering, whatever that is, is not worth it, and they fall away. Uh, These were described by Jesus in the parable of the sower. These are the seed that, that fell on the rocks. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But there's no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, a trial, a temptation, a time of suffering, they fall away. Maybe there have been times like that in your life. You've thought about giving it up, packing it in. Maybe you believe God God didn't come through for you, and you experience suffering. Maybe when you suffer, you think God has left you. And maybe you've asked yourself, Is it worth it? Well, in our passage for today, Paul answers this question with an emphatic yes. In verses 18 through 25 of Romans 8, he wants to encourage us. He wants to give us hope. These verses are meant to help us persevere in our faith. There's an importance to persevering, to remaining till the end uh, faithful to Christ, to stand firm with Christ. In all our frustrations and our hardships and our sufferings of this life. And so, Paul begins in verse 18 by declaring the truth that suffering does not compare with future glory. I could say present suffering does not compare with future glory. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, there is no, there's no comparison? Have you heard that statement before? There's no comparison. For example, I might say, there's no comparison between Star Trek and Star Wars. Now, I don't mean you can't compare these things because you obviously can. What I mean is, in my opinion, one of the two things is so much better than the other that there's no need to compare them. So which one is better? Star Trek? Star Wars. Star Wars, Star Trek. Okay, we have some disagreement here. Now, as you see, that's a problem. Because often when we say there is no comparison between A or B, I mean, people have said recently, what's, what's happening right now? The World Cup? Did you guys even know that? You Americans. There's no comparison between the World Cup and the World Series. Amen. So, so, but, but we don't know what she means. I mean, we think she means the World Series because she's an American, but who knows? Usually when we say this thing, uh, this, uh, there's no comparison, we're stating an opinion, right? Not a fact. However, when when God's Word says there is no comparison between two things, uh, this is not an opinion. And in verse 18, Paul states the fact. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory. The present suffering does not compare With our future glory. Future glory is so much better. There's no comparison. And as we'll see, Paul is not only uh, talking about the suffering that we might endure as Christians. Persecution for being a a representative of Jesus Christ. He's also talking about the, the suffering of this present time. This would include suffering brought on by by being part of this world, by being part of a a sinful world because of selfishness, pride, anger, hatred, covetousness, greed, envy, lust, adultery. This leads to suffering, to oppression, to racism, to terrorism, to divorce, to disease, to murder, to war, and ultimately to death. Death. What we will see is that because of sin, suffering is built in to the human experience. It should come as no surprise. And yet, Paul wants us to know there is no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory. And notice, this is written to who? The church. You're part of this. There's no no comparison between your present suffering that you will experience... You don't get to escape suffering because you're a Christian, but you are the ones that have a future glory to look forward to. The world has no future glory. The statement doesn't apply. They just have to live in present suffering, and that's all they have to look forward to. Now, the statement has a very important difference. The statement, there is no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory. It's a, it has a very different, uh, important difference between, uh, from the Star Wars, Star Trek comparison. Anybody see it? What's the difference? Maybe I'll give you a hint. What if I were to say there's no comparison between the next upcoming Star Trek movie and the Star Wars, The Last Jedi movie? You see the issue, right? I'm saying there's no comparison between something that's already happened Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and something that's in the future, uh, the next Star Trek movie, which I'm sure will be much better than any Star Wars, right? Star Trek. Okay, sorry. You guys didn't know that, did you? You see the issue? I'm saying there's no comparison between something that has already happened and something that's in the future. The problem is that we have a great deal of experience with present, keyword present, suffering. But our future, keyword future glory, is yet to come. Most of us have experienced or are experiencing some kind of suffering. It's, it's degrees, right? We haven't experienced most of us Well, I won't say that. We have, we, we've experienced suffering as well. But we must exercise faith when it comes to our future glory. We must trust in God that His promises are true. That there is an inheritance uh, waiting for us. We must, in faith, believe that there's no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory. And what we're going to see, and this is really interesting, no matter how much you suffer in this life, there's still no comparison. So the greatest suffering that any human can endure in this life, there's no comparison to the future glory. That says a lot about what that future glory has to offer us. Because when, but we need to know this, we need to trust it, because when suffering comes, it's going to take deep conviction, and it's going to take hope, not to throw in the towel, not to give up. When you experience the suffering uh, this world brings, you, you'll be tempted to say, uh, if this is the payoff for trusting in Christ, I'm done. If I must suffer just like, or, or sometimes more than everyone else in the world, then what's the point of being a Christian? I might as well eat, drink, and, and be merry for tomorrow I die. If giving up, losing hope when you're experiencing suffering were not a real temptation, Paul wouldn't have written this paragraph. He's writing to help us not throw, throw away our future hope, not to give up when suffering in this, in this present time seems overwhelming. So, so listen carefully. Because if, if, you're, if you've not suffered... <laughs> If you've not suffered much, your time will come. When you find yourself asking God, why is this happening to me? It's going to happen to you. And God has, has inspired this section of Scripture so that, so, that, so, so that you'll be ready. So that you'll be able to fight the fight of faith. And I think part of, one of the biggest parts of, of dealing with suffering when it comes is knowing it's coming. Of not believing somehow, uh, that somehow you're immune, because you're not. I'm not. So we need to, uh, this equips us to fight the fight of faith and not be conquered by despair and unbelief. It'll help you continue to trust in God, even and especially in the midst of suffering. And so Paul begins by assuring us that suffering in this life, in this world, is not permanent, that change is coming. This is just temporary. That suffering creation, this is our second point, will experience future glory. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation. Everything Right now, creation. Everything God has made, the heavens and the earth, and everything He filled, filled it with is eagerly waiting, eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And what this waiting and longing means is that at the present time, creation, and now I'm talking about I'm not I'm talking about everything but sort of everything besides humanity. Humanity will come next. Everything outside of everything that's part of creation is not what it will be. There's something more. There's something greater to look forward to. Something about creation will change when? when the sons of God are revealed. Now, who are the sons of God? Well, if you, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you know that, that, that they are both uh, male and female who've received the spirit of adoption of sons, who've been given the privilege of sonship, who by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ have been adopted into the family of God with all the privileges that in that culture a son received. So sons of God is just another way of referring to Christians, to those who've trusted in Jesus Christ. One of these days, I want to do a sermon series on all the ways the Bible refers to Christians. Sons of God, the Bride of Christ, the Beloved. So many, so many others that we can gain insight from. So, so this, uh, this passage says we're sons of God and the sons of God will be revealed. And Paul says creation is longing for our sonship to be publicly revealed. And what I believe that means is that one day we will, we will finally be fully like the Son of God. Paul describes this future revealing. It's not now. We're not fully like the Son of God. But he, he describes it in, in just a few verses down in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. One day, we will be perfectly holy in Christ. We will share in His glory. That's what we saw in verse 17. Just back up a few other verses. We suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Our present suffering is not the end. It's not the goal. The goal isn't the suffering. The goal is the glorifying. One day, we will be revealed as sons. We will become like Christ and will be glorified with Him. But that time is not now. Now is the present time of suffering. And therefore, our glory is in the future. Therefore, creation must wait. And you ask, but why? Why must creation wait? Why must we wait? Why is there this time of not being revealed fully as the sons of God? Why can't we enjoy the glory now? And the answer, I believe, comes with one uh, simple, uh, terrible, and yet and tragic word. Uh, sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, it not only affected them, but it affected all humanity and all of creation. When they fell, it all came tumbling down. That's what Paul describes in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected... Creation didn't want to be subjected to futility, to frustration, to vanity, which is really what this word means. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation is not what it ought to be. Or not what it was created to be. Creation is not as beautiful as it is meant to be. I mean, think about that. Think about your times in in nature, your times at uh, Yosemite and Yellowstone and beautiful beaches. That's not what it's supposed to be. That's not good enough. We think it's awesome, awe-inspiring, but there's so much more. There's so much more that the creation can and will be. It's become frustrated, not willingly, not through its own choi- choice, but because of him who subjected it. So who subjected creation to futility? Some say Adam. Some say Satan. But if you read the Bible, if you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that the answer is God himself. After the fall, it was God who declared curses upon his creation, upon humanity, and upon the earth. If you think about it, it's only God who could have subjected his own creation to futility. It was God who caused pain in childbirth. It was God who cursed the ground so it would uh, bring forth thorns and thistles. It was God who caused us to toil for our food by the, the sweat of our brow. And it was God who decreed that life would end in death. Genesis three nineteen. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return the words of God, which leads us, I think, to a massive and incredibly important truth that we often avoid. In response to sin, God decreed the futility, the suffering of humanity and creation. Suffering is not just a result of natural consequences. Suffering is a result of God's judgment on sin. The second law of thermodynamics. I forgot to check this with my son, the physicist, but I'm going to say it, and if it's wrong, too bad. The second law of thermodynamics, sometimes called entropy, maybe you've heard of it, says that the universe is running down, that that it has a built-in tendency to disorder, not to evolution, but to de-evolution. And what we need to know is that this is not an accident. It's part of God's judgment for sin. This was not how it originally was. Since the fall, futility is built into the universe by God. Let me be clear. The miserable condition of the world today, the suffering of the world, are owing to the judgment of God in response to sin. That's what Paul's saying. It was God who subjected creation to futility, to frustration, to vanity. Oftentimes, we Christians talk about the suffering in our world. We try to defend God. Oh, what do I say? How do I how do I how do I get how do I get God off the hook for this suffering, then all powerful God? We try to defend the sovereign, all powerful God by taking him out of the no, this isn't what God wants, which makes no sense, right? He's the all powerful sovereign God, and it's happening. Ta da. But still we say things like suffering is not something God wants. Suffering is only a result of sin. And that's partly true. Yes, suffering is a result of sin, but suffering is not only the natural consequences of sin. Suffering was decreed by God because of sin. That's what we see clearly in the book of Genesis. Because of Adam's sin, God decreed suffering. Why? I think John Piper answers that question well. He says, The meaning of all the misery in the world is that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of more... I am really having trouble speaking this morning. Moral evil. If you see a suffering in this world that is unspeakably horrible, let it make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is against an infinitely holy God. The meaning of futility is that sin, falling short of the glory of God, is ghastly, hideous, repulsive, and beyond imagination. As we see and as we experience suffering in our world, it reveals to us the horrible nature of sin. I mean, just imagine a world where sin was here, rampant, but for some reason there was no suffering. Would we ever turn to God? Would we ever turn to Christ? If it was sin that caused God to decrease suffering in this world, then sin must be ghastly, hideous, repulsive, repulsive, beyond imagination. So, so we see the, the universal nature. All creation has been subjected to futility. And we see the reason for this futility, for this suffering, because of sin, God decreed it. Suffering is God's way of revealing the horrific nature of sin. Now, I don't know about you, and you might be thinking, well, well why is he telling me this? What's the point? But it gives me, as a Christian, comfort knowing that suffering was decreed by God. Imagine if it wasn't. It wasn't part of God's plan. It's out of His control. Because Romans 8.29, which we'll get to next week, which we love this verse, it says, We know that for those who love God, and that's supposed to be us, all things, all things, even suffering, work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This verse is not a promise that if you're a Christian, only good things will happen in your life. Only things you perceive as good will happen in your life. Or or even that God will turn every bad thing into something that you perceive as good. This verse comes in the context of bad things, of suffering, of futility. And it's meant to encourage us that even suffering will work in our lives for our ultimate and eternal good. More on that next week. We need to know that the same God who decreed present suffering has promised future good, future glory. Suffering is not the end. And suffering is in His hands, in His control. God did not subject the creation to futility forever. That's what Paul says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That's another clue that God is the one that subjected it. Adam wouldn't subject it in hope. Satan would it. Who would subject it in hope but God? God had a plan. Futility, suffering is not the end. There is hope. He put us in this time of suffering that we would look to the future with hope. We have a sure hope because of God's promises in verses 21 and 22. If God had given us no promises about the future, then we would just be stuck in this hopeless suffering, but he says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Yes, today, now creation, everything around us is in bondage to corruption, to decay. It longs and it groans It is right now in in great pain. As life is born, childbirth, and life is lost, death, there is pain and misery. In this creation, no experience is untainted by pain. Even if the only pain is knowing that this experience can't last. Oh, this is so great, but it's going to be over. There's pain in knowing it's temporary. Creation is caught in a continuous cycle of death and decomposition. Again, physics and experience teaches us that the whole universe is deteriorating and running down, losing more energy than it can generate. Everything in nature wears down and it dies. Nature is currently a killer. And so nature is is a realm of pain and suffering. But none of this will last. There is hope. One day, creation itself will be set free from its bondage, from its corruption. One day, creation will be restored. One day, creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is like like what we already talked about, the revealing of the sons of God. When the children of God are glorified, when we're fully transformed into the image of Christ, on that day, creation will be free from its bondage to corruption. It's linked to the fact that, that humanity is sinful, therefore creation is, is in futility. But one day that will be no more. And creation will be free to be what God intended it to be. And what will that be? What will that look like? Well, I don't know everything that a, a restored creation means. I mean, we could go to Revelation and talk about some of that. We're not going to do that this morning but I want to share three things that that I'm sure of. First, and again, this is designed for you to, this is where I'm going. This is my hope. My hope isn't here. My hope is there. First, instead of futility, there will be fulfillment. When we consider the majesty and the greatness of the oceans and the mountains and the valleys and the forests and so on and so forth, it staggers the mind to imagine what the world will be when it's free to be as God intended it. Second, instead of corruption, there will be strength and newness. The second law of thermodynamics will be repealed. Currently, each moment, things are getting older, they're faded, they're weaker, they're more incoherent. But in the new earth, things are new, beautiful, strong, coherent forever. Third, suffering will cease. Instead of suffering... There will only be eternal joy. This is why the, the best metaphor, I think, for this current state of creation is this idea of childbirth. The pain of childbirth leads to the, the joy of new life. The painful pangs of creation that they're now experiencing are not meaningless because the world is, is giving birth through the power of God to a new version of itself, a future of eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. And this is just the first part of Paul's answer to the question about whether our future glory makes our present suffering worth bearing. Even creation, Paul says, urges you to say yes. Have hope, be encouraged, persevere, because present suffering creation will experience future eternal glory. And not only that, third point suffering christians will experience future glory pauls implied this but now he he declares it have you ever looked forward to something with, with great anticipation for those of us who are married think back to the to the days and the weeks and the months before our wedding most of us look forward to that day with great anticipation I was counting the days and the minutes and the hours until Christina and I could be reunited as as husband and wife. And it's with even a greater sense of anticipation and longing that we, the bride of Christ, wait to be fully united with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Paul describes this anticipation, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Are you groaning inwardly in great anticipation of being with Christ, of being like Christ? Just as creation groans and waits for restoration, just as a woman in labor pains groans and waits for the child to come, our present suffering causes us to groan Waiting for our future glory. Now our glory is in the future. That's why we call it future glory. And we must have faith that it will come. But our faith need not be blind. God does this, doesn't he? He gives us help. He gives us hints. He doesn't just say, trust in me. There's no, there's no reason to trust in me. I mean, the whole, even, even our, our futile creation testifies to his greatness. Because as Paul points out, we've already been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Like like the brief kisses, the very brief kisses of engagement. The first fruits of a harvest are the foretaste of the great fruit, the joy, the pleasure that's to come. Currently, the Spirit is giving us gradual, internal freedom from the effects of sin and death. By the power of God, we're being freed gradually, ever so gradually from sin and death. The Spirit is gradually, slowly transforming us to become more like Christ. But this, these are only the first fruits, just a, a taste of the complete and total freedom from the effects of sin and death in our bodies and our spirits that the Spirit will one day give us. This will come only when uh, we have what we currently do not have, yet eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So how, how can Paul tell us to wait for this when in verse 15, if you remember, he's already said, he said, we're adopted. We have to receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Because even though we've been legally adopted, We've yet to receive the fullness of this family resemblance, uh, the redemption of our bodies. Currently, we've been legally adopted, but we still live in our sinful flesh. We still live in our corrupt bodies. But one day, we'll be redeemed. We'll receive a a new, we call it the resurrection body. And then we'll experience our full adoption of sons. We'll be made fully like Jesus Christ. But even now, we can experience those first fruits. Those fruits of our adoption and our redemption. Sometimes we realize that we've grown more to be like Christ in our life in some ways. Perhaps we notice in, in, in some ways we're less flawed than we once were. We're less, we're less apt to jump to anger. We're less uh, likely to stare where we shouldn't stare. We're more loving than we used to be. Or we act in a godlier way than we used to. And we can rejoice in that. Thank God for that. But understand, these are only the first fruits. And they're so limited because of our corrupt body. And these first fruits are meant, though, to give us hope. To encourage us that our present suffering cannot be compared to the glory that we're awaiting. That's what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. What hope? The sure hope of our future glory. You may experience suffering now, but you, will, you were saved to experience future eternal glory. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's really a key application here this morning, patience. All this is future pointing and to 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 wait for something in the future, you have to have patience we, we aren 't very patient people i 'm not a very patient person i want it I want it now, but we know that we are not what we one day will be that we we do not already have all that we will one day have. We know that our our best days lie ahead of us and, and And one day, our painful days will all be behind us. And we're called to have hope in what's to come. We're called to put our trust in God and wait eagerly and patiently for our future glory. Knowing that the pain will pass and that this life is not all there is. It's very short, in fact, compared to eternity. I mean, we can't understand that. We're pretty temporal and we think, oh man, this is going on way too long. It's been a whole hour, you know? But eternity we have eternity before us with uh, pleasures forevermore, joy at his, his right hand. We look forward to the day when, as C.S. Lewis memorably puts it, God will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, little g, a, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. This is, this is what we have to have faith in. We can't imagine it. We can't picture it. We're, we're so corrupt. Our cre- the creation around us is so corrupt. This takes faith. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we're here for—nothing less. He meant what he said. So let me ask you a question: Given all we've just seen in God's Word, given that it's true, there's no comparison between our present suffering and our future. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Maybe there's some of you that are, have really suffered or are really suffering. Do you believe that? That our that there is no comparison between your present suffering. And your future glory, given that suffering creation and suffering Christians will experience future eternal glory, given that if, if you are a son of God, you will experience future glory, what does that mean for your life right now? As you uh, hopefully wait patiently for your full transformation, for the redemption of your body, for the riddingness, getting rid of sin how then shall you live? How shall you live in the midst of, the, of a world and of a body, your own, filled with suffering? Well, I think in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 18, write, these down, write that down if, you, if you're taking notes. I think I put it there for you. I think Paul gives an answer and an application. He writes, So we do not lose heart. In the midst of suffering... Whatever it is, do not lose heart. Do not lose hope in the future. Though our outer self is wasting away, second law of thermodynamics, though we're suffering the pains of being part of a decaying universe, our inner self is in Christ, is being renewed day by day. We, day by day, are undergoing this process of renewal by the Spirit of God. We are experiencing these first fruits that we talked about. Rejoice, because you're in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, beyond all comparison. There's no comparison. This is the truth that we've just been talking about, Romans 8, 18-25. And remember, who's writing this? Who wrote Romans? Who wrote Colossians? It's the Apostle Paul who experienced what we would consider great suffering, right? In his life, imprisonment, beating, shipwrecks, etc. He was, was, uh, uh, tradition tells us, martyred, killed for his faith. And he calls suffering in this world light and momentary affliction. And he says, it's serving a purpose of preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. The future glory we'll experience will be huge. It'll be beyond anything we can imagine. It'll be heavy. It's it's weighty. It'll be awesome. It's eternal. It's beyond comparison to our present. What Paul says, I don't say this. Paul says light and momentary affliction. There is no comparison. And what should this cause us to do? How should this cause us to live? Here's the application as we wait patiently in hope for our future glory. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are you looking to? Are you looking to the things that are seen, the things around you, the pleasures of this world that ultimately... And only lead to pain and sorrow and death and suffering? Or are you looking to and are you living for the things that are unseen? I mean, we keep coming back to this. He's called it earlier, the things of the Spirit, the things of God, the things of heaven. The things found in the Word of God. The things of eternity. Because when we we look away from our present suffering and we turn our eyes to our future glory found in Jesus Christ, it's then that we gain a new and a true perspective. It's then that our present suffering becomes, even in our own minds, light and momentary. It's then that that we know We have this sure hope. It's then that we experience joy and satisfaction in this life. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time looking to our future glory, but God gives us that down payment now, and He begins to work in us now, and He gives us, if we'll turn to Him, joy and satisfaction in Him now. It's then. When we turn our eyes away from our present suffering and turn our eyes to Jesus, that we become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Over the last few years, uh, maybe more than any other time in my life, I've I've seen this in so many of you here at Bridges. So many of you who've who have who have been in and uh, who who have had and continue in different kinds of suffering. You've taught me that when you turn your focus away from yourself. Away from your suffering and turn your eyes to Jesus and to your future glory. It's then that God meets you. It's then that God meets us. He meets us in a new and a, and a glorious way, a transforming way. I believe that's maybe one of the other important parts of suffering. It's because when we suffer, when we endure that pain, I mean, I think we've talked about this in Romans, I think Paul's even said it. It's going through that process and, and turning to Christ. Our, our, our relationship with Him is deepened in a way it could not be without suffering. So with great anticipation, longing, and patience, look and live for what is unseen. In the midst of your temporary suffering, look and live for the eternal things of God. I want to close this morning by reading a poem from our beloved Charlie Brown, who went to be with the Lord. How many years is it now? Two, three? Three years, I think. Maybe four. When I found this in his book, his book, uh, in the lantern's light, I knew that Charlie had written it, uh, that's not it, Uh, had written it, I was going to say for us today, but I'm not going there. He had written it based on uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, what we've looked at today. And I knew it would come alongside God's word this morning and, and increase our hope for the fu- for our future glory. And in fact, that's the title of the poem, Future Glory. Charlie writes What a waste of time collecting tough time thoughts when I consider what's ahead, no comparison, exclamation point. All of creation anxiously waits all of creation anxiously waits for your revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, with your liberation. Come, great bondage breaker, and open the door to freedom. You have offered hope. Now we offer ourselves to you, Father, as your adopted children. We give you praise for the future glory. We eagerly anticipate future glory in your presence. Amen. Let that be our prayer this morning as we live this place, that we would anticipate, that we would wait patiently for the future glory that God offers and that we would look to that future glory, we would look to the unseen things of God instead of the the trouble we have here. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray for myself, I pray for each one of us here that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to the unseen. To the future glory that you have been and continue to prepare for us, to our great and glorious inheritance in Christ. Lord, and I thank you that this inheritance, this future glory has absolutely nothing to do with me, that I now live in this this fallen world, in a fallen body, and I struggle with sin. But you've given me your spirit and you're working in my heart, you're working in our hearts, and we pray you would continue to do that and continue to direct our eyes towards you, towards home, in your presence, towards our future glory, in Christ's name, amen.